week mini-series on Genesis before we go into the book of Exodus. Now, I know what you're thinking, self. You're, you're thinking to yourself, self, it must be difficult for these incredibly handsome preachers of the word to get through 50 chapters of Genesis in eight weeks, and you would be correct. It is incredibly difficult, but we're trying our best to set up uh, where we're going for this next, I don't know, I don't, we haven't deciphered how long Exodus is going to be, a, a really long time. So we're just kind of, it's more of a survey of the book of Genesis more than anything else. Uh, we'll be flying pretty high, but, but hopefully gleaning and understanding where we are in the story. So as I was prepping for this week, uh, this word kept coming to my mind, and, and for some of you, you're going to resonate with this word, for some of you, you're not. Um, but I have some descriptors, so we'll see. But this word is entitled. Entitled. So just, let's just, I mean, we're, we're a church. We're supposed to be honest, right? So if anyone would say, man, I am entitled. I'm just a little entitled. Would you raise your hand? Wow, look at this honesty. That's not what I expected. And then I had a rhetorical joke that I was going to bust on you. But, but most of you raised your hand. So, so here's, I just Googled, how do you know that you're entitled? And here's what some of the descriptors said. See if this sounds like you. You expect the same rules that apply to others shouldn't apply to you. Right? I mean, I, I have seen people in this room uh, throw a hissy fit when they got a ticket. Right? Talking about you, Daniel. Right? We, we think that our, well, it shouldn't apply. I'm just, I'm just busting on you, man. I love you. But you did throw a hissy fit. It was great. Right? So we think the rules that apply, should, uh, shouldn't, or that apply to others shouldn't apply to us. Another one, you feel massively put upon when others ask you for small favors, but you ask for favors all the time. So you can ask for favors, but, but if someone asks you a favor, you get all upset. That's not what I wanted to say, but we're in church. You expect other people to be more interested in you and what's going on in your agenda than you're interested in them and their agenda. So you get on one-on-one conversation, you're the one doing all the talking. You might be a little entitled. You disregard rules that are intended for everyone's comfort. For example, you ignore signs asking you to please not put your feet on the chairs at the movies. Now that one was a personal attack to me because that is comfortable, right? I don't care that you don't like it. I'm going to put my feet up at the movie theater. Uh, You think that it's okay to upset or offend other people. You see people who like to keep the peace as weak. Where's my Enneagram 8s, right? We just got to tell the truth. I don't care how it makes you feel. And working in groups, you think you should be the leader or get the most credit. So does anyone else feel called out by these lists of entitlements, that we all wrestle a little bit with being entitled in the world that we live in? Now, why am I saying all this? If we approach this story this morning without uh, talking about our sense of entitlement, please hear me, we're going to miss the entire story. That if we read this story with a low view of sin and a high view of our own entitled self, we're going to miss the grace and mercy of God. And this is one of the easiest stories to do that, right? That that we're going to feel entitled, we're going to read parts about this story and go, well, that's not me, that's not how I would have done it, that's not, if I was there, the situation would have been a little bit different. We're going to read into it naturally with our own entitlement. But if we remember the true doctrine of original sin, and understand that all have sinned and all have fallen short and all deserve death, then we start to understand just the mercy of God in this story. But if we read it with entitlement, we'll miss it. 
If we read it with a true and contrite heart, we'll get it. So with that in view, let's pick it up in Genesis chapter 6. We're going to read 5 through 18 together. 5 through 18. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creepy things and birds and the heavens, for I am sorry that I made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And, when God, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourselves an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms of the ark and cover it inside and out with a pitch. This is how you should make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. The breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door on its side. Make slower second and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh and with the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. So let's pray this morning. And Father, as we dive into this word, God, would we understand your heart? Would we understand your love for us? Would we see rightly this story and place it within redemptive history? God, illuminate this text to us this morning so that we can see it clearly. It's your name that we pray. Amen. Now, like I said earlier, this, there's so much. There's three, four chapters that we would have to cover to get to this adequately. And so, so for the sake of time this morning, I'm not even going to really talk about the flood or the ark, right? We read a little bit about it. Uh, you should go see it in Kentucky. Has anyone seen it? I mean, it's, it's nuts, right? And then like, you can ride camels, which is even weirder. One of the f- best memories of my life is watching my mother-in-law ride a camel. It was fantastic, right? So go see it, go check it out, go marvel at it. It's incredible to see and walk through and understand. But, but here's kind of my frustration with this, if I can just be honest straight up from the beginning. Here's my frustration. Because I, I've heard the story, I've read the books, I've had the felt board and, and understanding. It's always Noah and the... Ark, right? Noah's Ark, Noah and the Ark, Noah and the Flood. That's all that we hear. That's all that we understand. Uh, but, but for clarity this morning, I just want to maybe rechange that a little bit because I think it would be helpful for us to see. It's not Noah and the Flood, Noah and the Ark, but it's Noah and, the God, and God's covenant. It's Noah and the covenant that really changes everything. The flood is part of it. The ark is part of it. But it's the covenant that we'll see that God makes with Noah and makes with the people that is really the miraculous thing of the whole story. So we've talked a little bit about Noah and we've read about him. And then I'm going to come back at the end and we're going to talk about the covenant. But, but we're really going to miss the middle part because that's, that's just details. That's not the main idea that we want to drive forth this morning. It's Noah and God's covenant. That's what I want us to see. So go back with me at verse 5 because it's, it's helpful for us to understand just the condition of the day. 
In verse 5, we see this, that the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. Every thought, every action, every motive was only evil continually, over and over and over and over and over again. And we skip down to verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw that the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I will make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. So last week we saw, or two weeks ago, we saw Dylan talk about creation, right? And the refrain that we see in Genesis 1 and 2 is, God created and it was good. God created, it was good. God created, it was good. God created, it was, thank you for another disappointment. That's my entitlement here, wanting you to talk back to me, but we'll get there, right? So God created and it was good. And then last week we talked about the fall and just how much, it's not that we were uh, sick with sin, it was that our lives have been shattered with sin, that it shattered all of humanity, that the world has now fallen apart because that sin has entered the world. And I read this last week just from the ESV Bible study, uh, or ESV study Bible, excuse me, that the disastrous consequence of Adam's sins cannot be overemphasized, resulting in the fall of mankind, the beginning of every sin, suffering, and pain, as well as physical and spiritual death for the human race. So we can see Genesis 1 and 2, everything was good. Genesis 3, sin enters the world. Genesis 6, the entire world is filled with evil. I mean, just how drastically it went down. And we can even go back and go from Genesis 3 to Genesis 4. We see the first murder take place where Cain kills his brother Abel. I mean, just like that, when sin entered the world, sin fractures and puts everything apart. One theologian, uh, Herman Bovink, says, Adam sinned, consequently sin and death entered the world and held sway over everything. So, so quickly sin enters in the world, everything falls apart. And here's what the scriptures say, that it's corrupt and there is violence. So corrupt, it denotes cold-blooded and immoral infringement of the personal rights of others, motivated by greed and hate, often making physical violence and brutality a reality. So, so that's what we're talking about. And many theologians and scholars, when you read about uh, just the fallen pre-flood world, where you've got angels mixing with demon, fallen angels, I mean, it's just a mess. And everyone would say, we, we have no idea what corruption is, like the corruption that was taking place back there. I mean, we think that we live in a world of sin and evil, but, but nothing holds a candle to what was going on there. There was no goodness in the world. Every person was wholly corrupted, and there was nothing within them that was not evil. I mean, that's the world that we find ourselves in Genesis 6. One theologian says that the people of Noah's days were not dabblers into sin. They had taken the plunge, and everything they did was abomination. Everything they did. They had taken a full plunge into a corrupt lifestyle. And one of the things that God puts out very clearly is the problem of violence. So these are image bearers of God killing other image bearers of God. And he was just not going to allow this. We saw, again, Cain murdering Abel, and it just goes down from there. So just one personal point of application for all of us to see, though. Genesis 1-2, everything was good. Genesis 3, centered into the world. 
Genesis 4, the first murder. Genesis 5, everything's falling apart by Genesis 6. It is out of control. So, so please hear me when I say that you cannot entertain a little bit of sin in your life and think it's not going to destroy you. Right? Like, we can't just turn a blind eye. I know I shouldn't walk in this, but, but trust me, I've got it in control. Like, yes, this is my sin, this is my, but, but it's in control, it's in a box, I'm not going to touch it, I'm not going to mess with it. This is just mine. Scripture would just tell us that's impossible. That sin is going to find you out, that sin is going to destroy you. We can't play games with sin. That is the nature of sin, is it creates and creates and creates and creates havoc until there's nothing left. So, so please, I'm begging you, from the mercy of God, quit playing games with sin. In God's grace and mercy, it will find you out. It is much better to repent and confess now, get into accountability within family groups now, before your marriage is destroyed, before your children are wrecked. Don't play games with sin. It will find you out. So, so we see just how corrupt this is. And then we get into a really interesting point when we look at the character and nature of God. And honestly, there's only two parts in Scripture where these words and verbiage are used. Look with me at verse 6. In verse 6 it says, And the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out the man, or blot out man who I'm created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I made them. He regretted it. So it's good and right for us to sit and, and understand and ponder what this word regret actually means. Because if we're not careful, we can take this, and, and there's been a whole lot of writing about this, and, and go the complete wrong way with it. So here's what we see. Regret really means to be pained or grieved. So the Lord's regret is unlike ours, meaning creating mankind as his image was not a mistake. So he's not saying, I should have never done this, I should have never created them. That's not what he's saying, because he could have easily destroyed everyone. If that's what he was saying, we, see, this entitlement in us kind of makes us believe and, and view ourselves a little higher than we should, right? That, that God was lonely, that God was bored in the heavens, so he created us so that he could have somebody to play with. And if it wasn't for us, then God's just going to be lonely and bored, so of course he can't get rid of us because, man, like, we're special. Look right at me. You're not special. God did not create you because he was bored, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, the Trinity is complete within itself. It needs nothing, right? That's just our entitlement starting to come out. He wants you, he desires you, and we'll see that in a second. But it's not that he couldn't have just destroyed everyone within the flood because he somehow needs us. That's just not the reality of what's taking place. So his regret is a little different. It could be translated as grieved, that he was so grieved by what was taking place on earth. So God is not showing weakness or admitting an error or regretting a mistake. Rather, he was expressing his need to take specific and drastic actions to counteract the weakness of man. So this grief, this sorrow that's happening to him is not, man, I should have never done this to begin with, but, but I've got to do something drastic to fix this. And probably one of the best explanations that I've read is from a guy named John Piper. I think this will be on the screen, yes. Here's what he said, and, and for parents in the room, this will make complete sense to us. 
If I discipline my son for blatant disobedience and he runs away from the home because I disciplined him, I may feel some remorse over the discipline. Not in the sense that I disapprove what I did, but in the sense that I feel sorrow that the discipline was necessary and part of a wise way of dealing with my son in this situation. And great sorrow that he ran away. If I had to do it all over again, I would still discipline him. It was the right thing to do, even knowing that one consequence might be alienation for a season. If I approve the discipline from one angle and at the same time I regret the discipline from another angle, if such a combination of emotions is possible for me in my finite decisions, it's not hard for me to imagine that God's infinite mind, the infinite complexity of God's emotional life would be capable of something similar or even more complex. So there was a grief, there was a sorrow for what happened to mankind and how quickly sin destroyed it. And God had to fix it. God had to fix it. God had to step in and orchestrate a solution to what was taking place. The grief and sorrow there. But he didn't regret making humankind or else he would have gotten rid of humankind. But it was a grief of sorrow that only a father can fix. And here we just have to make a really special distinction before we move on. And I think I've said it a few times, but just to be clear, we're talking a grief from the heart of the Father, not vengeance. Does that make sense? There's a massive difference here between grief and sorrow that leads to action and vengeance that leads to death. So God is fully just in what he did. And we'll spend time here in a minute, but, but as a father, let me just confess something. Uh, there's times where from grief I discipline my kids, and there's times from vengeance I discipline my kids. Right? There's times that they're embarrassing me, that my pride's taking a hit because they're acting that way in public. So I'm not disciplined from a grief of they're going the wrong way. I'm disciplined from you're embarrassing me. Stop it. Right? This is not the heart of the Father. It is a grief and sorrow and lament that sin has wrecked humankind, so now he's intervening. It's not vengeance. He's not out to destroy everyone because they offended him, although he would be right to do so. In this moment, it is grief that leads him to this action. So, let's enter in Noah into the story. Look with me at verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So the Bible says that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord because he was righteous blameless, and walked with God. Now this is the first time that we see the word righteous mentioned in the Bible. So we should really uh, zoom in and lean in on what uh, Moses is trying to say as he's writing this. Because Noah's righteousness was not only used here, but we see it in Hebrews that by faith Noah being warned by God concerning events of yet unseen in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of the household. By this he can he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteous that comes by faith. And we see this again in 2 Peter that Noah is held to a high esteem because of his righteousness. Now Noah's righteousness did not come from his good works. Rather his good works came from his righteousness. And we see this same story play out. We'll see it in a couple weeks when we get to um, Genesis 15. We talk about Abraham. Genesis 15, 6 says that he being Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteous. 
So the righteousness of Noah was not because he was good, but because God reached out and he responded. He responded in obedience. We're talking this morning. If you've never seen the movie Evan Almighty, you should really watch it because it's pretty comical. Because it's this about this story, right? It's about Evan Baxter building the ark and, and just getting ridicule after ridicule after ridicule. And this is what's happening to Noah. I mean, Noah is getting destroyed by his friends and family for doing this. But he's obedient because God has spoken and he's listening. So we see that he's righteous. We also see that he's blameless. If righteous is our standing before God, blameless is our standing before men. So he was blameless. Did not mean he was sinless. And we actually, you can read Genesis 9 to 10 after the flood, uh, where Noah just makes some drastic mistakes that are listed within Scripture. But he means that he has integrity, he is whole, he is unblemished. And lastly, we see this, he walked with God. He walked with God. And this is just, again, when we start thinking about where we are in redemptive history, sin enters in Genesis 3, Genesis 4, Genesis 5, the world falls apart. Genesis 6, Noah comes in, and he has this relationship with God, that he walks with him, he spends time with him. Again, not face-to-face, that was destroyed the moment sin entered the world. But he spends time with him. And we, because of this, we see that Noah was obedient. Out of the righteousness, Noah was obedient that he builds this ark 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 foot high. Three decks, one door. He was building this for over, uh, excuse me, over 100 years. That's how long Noah and his family were working on this, over 100 years. And they were within the ark for a year and 10 days. I mean, it's just, it's just crazy when you think about it. This is not fictitious. This is a real reality. They built this massive boat, and they were able to live in it and sustain it for a year and 10 days with all these animals. It's just, it's just crazy. I mean, you think about this. It just blows my mind. But James would talk about this in James 1, right? That James calls us to be not just hearers of the word, but doers, that the life of Christians should be a lot marked by obedience. That when we hear the voice of God, we do what he says. And Noah is a perfect example of this for us. So again, I have another uh, quote. Uh, it's a longer one. It'll be on the screen by a British theologian named Alexander McLaren. And I just think this just puts in perspective what was really going on in this day for Noah. For 120 years, the wits laughed, and the common sense people wondered, and the patient Satan went on hammering and pitching at his ark. But one morning it began to rain, and by degrees somehow Noah didn't seem quite such a fool. The jest would look rather different when the water was up to the knees of the jesters, and their sarcasms would stick in their throats as they drowned. So it is always. So it will be at the last great day. The men who live for the future by faith in Christ will be found out to have been the wise men when the future has become the present and the present has become the past and is gone forever. While they had no aims beyond the things of time, which are now sunk beneath the dreary horizon, will wake too late to the conviction that they are outside of the ark of safety. And the truest epithet is thou fool. So all the sarcasm, all the wit that was thrown at Noah, and then it starts to rain, and then continues to rain, and then continues to rain. And this is where I want to spend the rest of our time together.
Because the character and nature of God, if we're not careful, is missed here by a false reading of the scripture and by entitlement that wells up in us. Because we read this story and we go, man, what a jerk. Like, how could God have ever done that? Why would God have ever done that? Why would he have killed all these people in this flood? Right? And so we read and we joke about, I mean, I was reading even commentaries this week of people on the other side that believes that, you know, like the book of, uh, the book of Genesis, and specifically this story, they can use it to disprove all of Christianity and blah, 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 blah. But it, but it did get me thinking, like, this, this was one of the earliest stories I heard from the Bible. Anyone else? I mean, you're getting rocked to sleep and we're singing about genocide. I mean, that, that's really what's taking place. Thanks, Mom. What a great story to fall asleep to. But, if, but again, if we, if we come at this scripture with this entitled mindset, we miss it. Because here's the reality. God is a merciful God, and we see this on full display here. I mean, here's just a couple things to get us into. Uh, go ahead and flip over to Genesis 9. I want us to read the covenant. But here's a few primers to get us there. For the first, uh, how long did it take Noah to build the ark? Over 100 years. Over 100 years. Now, could God have just said, here's an ark, get on, it's raining? Yes. 100 years the people had to repent. 100 years these people were watching what's taking place. They're listening to Noah saying, hey, God's going to wipe out everything. Repent. Believe. Hop on this ark with me. For a hundred years, they kept poking. They kept rejecting. So this wasn't an instantaneous thing. This was a hundred years, guys, that people could have repent, could have put their faith. This is a mercy of God to give them a hundred years. And here's the other part. The fact that God saved Noah and his family. When we really stop to consider the fact that all have sinned, Romans would say all have fallen short of the glory of God. Romans would say the wages of sin is death. It would have been fully right and justified for God to destroy everyone and everything. I'm done. You guys have sinned against me. You have cursed me. You've murdered image bearers of me. I'm, I'm done with you. I'm, I'm done completely. Go away. And friends, that would have been a just thing for God to do. Here's the thing, because maybe I have four kids, maybe I hear this all the time. It's just not fair. It's just not fair. I can't believe Grady gets to do this, and I can't believe Auburn gets to do that. Well, Auburn's 11, you're five. Like, there's some fairness here. Let me talk. Here's what's not fair, that God saved anyone, that God willingly said, you're going to forget about me, you're going to curse me, you're going to wish I didn't exist, you're going to go on sinning like I'm not even here. That's what's not fair. The fact that he chose to save anyone is the most unfair thing imaginable because what we all deserved was death. What we all deserved was condemnation. So the fact that he even saved anybody is not fair. We've got to lower our entitlement here to see that the unfair thing is not God seeking vengeance. It's not God punishing sin like he promised us he would. It's that he saved anybody. And by Noah and his family, we are here. That's the unfair thing. That I get to have breath in my lungs is not fair. That I get to have a beautiful wife and four fantastic children, that's not fair. That I get to love and shepherd you guys week after week after week, that's not fair. That's what we have to see. 
that God in his love and his grace and his mercy, he was the one that said, I'll take the unfairness so that you can have life. That's the unfairness that we see within the scriptures. So with all that in view, let's look at Genesis 9. This is after the flood. This is the covenant that God makes. And again, yes, the flood's important. We should study it. Go ride a camel in Kentucky and see the ark. That's great. Yes and amen. Go for it. But do not think about the flood without getting to this. Noah and the covenant. Genesis 9, we're going to pick it up in verse 8. Then God said to Noah and to his sons, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth that is with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I will establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living, living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and that shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I've established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So just three quick points about the covenant and then we'll transition into a time of communion. Because covenant language is not really used a bunch. If, if you've ever been to a wedding that I've done, which I think I'm up to 28, 29, uh, a bunch of you I've done your wedding, I'll always stop and establish what the covenant is. Uh, because we're more familiar with a promise or a contract, right? Like as long as you keep up with your end of the deal, we're fine. To always make a joke when, uh, and again, you guys have all been at weddings that I've done, but I always make the joke that as long as you stay skinny, I will stay married to you. But the moment you get fat, I'm out. I'm so glad Bree didn't sign up for that, right? As long as you make a bunch of money, then I'm in. But if you don't make a bunch of money, I'm out. Again, so glad Bree didn't sign up for that. So, so we walk into an easy divorce culture when we think that, that we're making a promise to each other that we can break instead of making a covenant. Because a covenant is different. A covenant is a promise, more than a promise, between two or more parties to perform certain actions, we can covenant together to work on this project until it's complete. So the concept of the covenant is lost in this modern society, but we have to bring it back. This covenant that he makes with Noah is an unconditional covenant. And here's what it means. Regardless of what you do, Noah, I'm going to do this. When we do weddings, we ask this. Regardless of how your spouse responds, you're making a covenant to love her, to serve her, to wash her in the water of the word, to do this, regardless of what happens over here. And this is what takes place in this covenant that we see. That, that not only does God initiate the covenant, but he takes sole responsibility for the entirety of the covenant. All grace, all mercy, I'm going to do it all. The promise, the covenant is based upon God's faithfulness alone. Now, here's just another crazy part. Even if people curse him, 
even if people deny him, even if, I mean, these enemies of God, he's making a covenant with, no matter what. No matter what, I will not flood the earth again, no matter what. This covenant is an unconditional covenant based solely on the goodness and faithfulness of God. How crazy is that? Secondly, that he shows us that his love for us through the sign of the rainbow. So not only did he say it, but, but we see it. And this is something we often forget about. And we look at rainbows, and, and, and sadly, rainbows have been taken by the, uh, what's, that, what's that YouTube clip where he sees like double rainbows and freaks out? You know what I'm talking about? Is it two or three or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's two. He's completely stoned, and it's hilarious. You should go watch it later because he is losing his mind over this double rainbow. Can I say stoned in church? Yeah. Elders, we good with that? I mean, it's just a, it's just a fact. I didn't. Give him, never mind, I digress. So it's, it's hilarious. Go, go watch it. So, so we, we just kind of lost this idea. But when we see a rainbow, because Scripture says when we see it and when God sees it, we're both seeing the same thing. His faithful mercy and grace on display that he's never going to flood the earth again. He's never going to do it. So he's in his grace. He's giving us this visual sign so that we can see it, be comforted, and be reminded of this. And then lastly, within this covenant, God vows to never flood or destroy the earth again. Now, again, let's, let's think about where we are in this moment. That has never been a thought or concern for us, has it? I mean, we never once have saw a thundercloud in the sky and go, oh man, what if this is it? Like, what if this is the rain that never stops and, and, and we're all done after this? I mean, I, I personally, I love a good thunderstorm. Anyone else? So I will find a spot where I can look outside the window where I'm nice and dry and warm and just watch it for hours. I, I just love the, thun, the lightning going through the clouds and especially the big ones that come. I mean, that's just a joy for me. I've never once sat in my house watching a thunderstorm going, this might be the end of my life. You? I've sat in a deer stand wondering if this was going to be the end of my life. But in the comfort of my house, I've never had that thought occur to me. And we cannot take that for granted because this is clearly the covenant that God has made for us. So this happened thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years later. Here we are, but we still somehow doubt the promises of God. That if God promised us, I will never flood the earth again, as it hasn't, then how can we doubt the promises when he says, I'll never forget you. I'll, I'll never leave you nor forsake you that you don't have to worry that I've got everything taken care of. If God has fulfilled this promise of never flooding the earth, then we can take to heart all of his other promises are true. We don't have to fret about anything in the same way that we never worry about a flood coming again. We don't have to worry about anything. We can just rest in everything. This is what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4.16 when he said, let us with confidence then draw near to the throne of grace. Let us with confidence ask a God that's never broken his promises, that's never broken his covenant, that's never gone back on his word. If it's never flooded again, that means that we can trust him completely. Now, now please hear me, because the, Isaiah, the writer of Isaiah highlights this. That, that doesn't mean that we're never going to experience storms. That doesn't mean that we're never going to go through hardships and calamities in our life. That's not what this means. But Isaiah 43 puts it this way, fear not, for I have redeemed you. 
I've called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you, because you're great. No, that's not how this ends. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. So, is it going to flood again? No. Is it going to rain? Like crazy. Are you going to go through some of the most difficult seasons of your life? Yes and amen. And I wish more people would have prepared us for this. I mean, that's one of the things I'm, I'm, again, our kids are getting older, so I'm going, man, what would I wanted to have learned within middle school and high school, right? I would have loved to know, someone show me an amortization schedule, right? I mean, just being honest, if you put this much money in retirement at 18, this is what it's going to look like when you're 65. No one taught me that. Public educators, fix that. That would have been great. This is what I wish someone would have taught me. You're going to go through some of the hardest, darkest days of your life but you're not gonna die. The, the flood is not coming. The rain is coming, but your Lord God will protect you. Don't sweat it, don't worry, don't doubt, don't fear. All of God's promises are yes and amen. He's with you, don't neglect that. So there's no condition under which God is gonna go back on his word. There's no condition. There's no condition whatsoever he's going to flood. That does not mean, please hear me, Second Peter talks about this, Revelation 20 and 21 talks about this, God will destroy the earth. We do know that's coming. He's going to refine it by fire. When he returns, everything's new. But he's never going to flood the earth again. So as we end our time together, we just need to kind of sit on this before we go into a time of communion. That even in sinful, wicked, violent, corrupt world where God has every right to wipe creation out forever, the mercy and grace of God chose a different route. That the fair thing, the just thing would have been for God just to start over, just to wipe us out completely, but he didn't. And not only did that, but his unconditional pursuit of having grace and mercy and making and creating a covenant with Noah says, I'll never flood the earth again. And as we prepare to go into the book of Exodus, we're going to see more covenants take place. And we're going to see God who should have destroyed the people of Israel bring them slowly with patience, bring them into the promised land. We're going to see his grace and mercy on display over and over and over and over again. And that's just a foreshadowing of what's to come with what we get to celebrate here in communion because he not only has grace and mercy for the people of Israel, but all the way through to us sending Christ to be our atonement. I mean, this is what we get to celebrate, that the unfair thing has happened, that Christ came, that he lived a sinless, perfect life. He was not corrupt. He was not evil. He had no sin within him, and the just thing would be for him to live and us to die. But in God's grace and mercy, reversed it. And he took the unfair thing, which is all the sin of the world, ours and yours included, on him on the cross, crucified, blood spilt for us. That is what we see coming. So the same God that showed mercy on Noah is the same God that shows mercy on the people of God in Israel. It's the same God that shows mercy on us by sending Christ. That's what we get to celebrate. That's what we remember through Christ, we are Noah and his family. If you're a believer in this room, through Christ, we are Noah and his family. That we have been saved. We have been redeemed. 
This is what we get to celebrate. So I want to read for us, like I do every week, the instructions for communion. And here's what I want us to do. I want us to just think and ponder and meditate on the mercy that God has shown us through Christ. The mercy that we see that God had every right to destroy everyone and everything forever, but he chose not to. He did the unfair thing. I want us to remember that we are Noah, that we are his family, that we are the recipients of this grace and mercy. And from that joy, let us take communion. But maybe for some of you in this room, that's not where you are. That's not where you are. You need to know that you're outside the ark. You're outside the door. That if you've not put your hope and trust in Christ alone, when the floodwaters come, I don't know what's going to happen to you. There will be destruction and death. And the elders will be in the back. We'd love to talk to you about that. Because the interesting thing about the ark is that there's one door. There's one way in. And right now, there's one way in to eternity with Christ forever. And that's through the person of work of Christ on the cross. There's one way in. Christ crucified. So we would love to talk to you about that and pray with you about that. Uh, me and Stephen will be in the back. But I'm going to read for us the instructions. Let's ponder this for a second, and then we'll go into worship and communion. So here's the text, 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 29. For I received from the Lord what, is, what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took the bread, and we had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and after supper saying, this cup of the new covenant in my blood, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this bread and drink of the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink of this cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So believers, let us confess and repent. Prepare our hearts. If you're not yet a believer in this room, I'll just ask that you skip out. Oh, I'm not asking. Scripture would ask that you just sit out on this and, and let the church partake. But if you have any questions, any thoughts, we'd love to talk to you and pray with you about that. Sound good? All right, let's pray. And Father, would you forgive us for misunderstanding and misreading the story of Noah? Father, that you were not being a mean bully for doing what you did. That you were fully justified. And to push that even further, you were unfair for saving anybody. That your love for us knows no bounds. That the just right thing to do would be to wipe out creation forever. But you chose not to. You chose to leave a few. You chose to show mercy when we didn't deserve it. You showed to offer grace. And so, Father, when we look at the rainbows that are pop up in the sky, when we think about this story, would we remember, would we celebrate your grace and mercy for us? That we haven't deserved it, that we can't earn your love. But even then, you poured on us. Even when we sin, you love us. 
so much so that you sent your only son to die for us. And so let us remember the covenant. You'll never flood the earth again. When it rains, we don't have to worry. And when it metaphorically rains in our lives this week, this month, this year, we don't have to worry that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence that all of your promises are yes and amen, that you'll never change your mind, that you'll never go back on any of your covenants. As we take communion this morning, let us remember and let us rejoice that your love for us knows no bounds. It's only in your son's name that we can pray. Amen. So whenever you're ready, communion will be open. Thank you.